My name is Phil Stenson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Laws Podcast, we listen to an interview of me by Eugene Purier and Sean Blackman that originally aired on Radio Sputnik out of Washington, D.C. on June 29th, 2018. Very happy to be joined here by Dr. Philip Stinson, an associate professor in the criminal justice program at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Stinson, thank you so much for being back with us. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to start with here, uh, especially given the context of what we've seen with Antoine Rose and, and Pittsburgh really highlighting the issue of police shootings and killings yet again here in the nation. But of course, many things that have happened recently. There's always a lot of conversation about what the what can curb these things and what can make a, a, a difference in how it is. After the shooting of Stephon Clark in Sacramento, not that long ago uh, this year, there's a number of uh, state lawmakers in the state of California who are trying to put a new piece of legislation in the Police Accountability and Community Protection Act that essentially would raise the legal threshold for when an officer can use deadly force and require the police to use non-lethal options First, and this has been sort of a big issue that people have, have raised for some time uh, as it relates to Graham v. Connor and other Supreme Court precedents that, you know, with those in place, it's very difficult to find a way to, to convict an officer for the, the use of deadly force or wherever it may be. So obviously, this is the type of thing that if, you know, it passes, will probably end up in the courts to some degree. But do you think that these are the, these types of moves? to try to shift some of the legal standards are effective ways to reduce the number of, of deadly force incidents? No, I really don't think so. I, I don't know what the right standard would be going forward if we should change the law, if we should you know, continue as is. Here's what I think. I, I have thought a lot about this. I've talked with people a lot about this. You know, this is something I've studied for many years. And, and, and I'm concerned that, you know, we've taken such step backwards since Tennessee versus Gardner was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1985 and Graham versus Connor in 1989. When I was a young police officer, you know, starting in the mid-1980s, uh, you know, 1986, I remember well the holding of Tennessee versus Gardner being drilled into me daily by my field training officer as a new police officer. It, you know, we thought as, as police officers at that time, and again, I was only a police officer for you know several years before I went on to other things. We thought that that, that it was clear thirty however many years ago now, thirty one years ago, that you you can't shoot black teenagers in the in the back as they run away from you if you're a police officer. And what we see time and again here, are videos where we see black males, uh, not always young, but black males being shot in the back by police officers in various places all across the country. And there, there just seems to be such a disconnect as to what the training is, what the training should be, and the way that officers behave on the streets. You know, we had always assumed, you know, I'm a criminologist now and I study police behaviors. We had always assumed that police officers will uh, perform in the streets in violent street encounters, potentially violent street encounters, in the way that they were trained, if they were trained well, and that the best training will take hold, and that's the way that they'll act. And, you know, I've talked to one instance recently with a police chief where there was a shooting, a fatal shooting, and her comment to me, you know, almost with tears in her eyes, that they thought the officer would do what he was trained to do, and we were shocked to see in the video the officer acted in a way completely inconsistent with his law enforcement training and we don't know we don't know what's going on we don't know what happened there you know i've talked to friends who've 
commented that there's a real disconnect with some of the younger officers now, uh, some of the officers on the street. And, and, and I get back to something that I think, Eugene, you, uh, Sean, and I may have talked about in the past, and that's that I worry about the effect of military experience, combat experience on civilian law enforcement officers in the United States. I always ask in these cases when we see these shootings, was that officer involved in the shooting ever deployed in combat? Were they ever trained in the military? If not, were they trained in their civilian law enforcement jobs by firearms instructors, range officers who had combat military experience? Because it's just not acceptable when somebody runs away from you in a traffic stop and without any commands for them to stop at all, without any indication that there's something in their hand that could be a weapon, to shoot them in the back. That that's the officer's first thought is is very troubling and very shocking. So I don't know that changing the legal standard in and of itself is going to fix anything, especially in that we see the best estimate is 900 to 1,000 times a year on-duty police officers in the United States shoot and kill someone, and yet only a handful of times each year is an officer actually charged. In almost every case, including the cases where officers are charged, frankly, there's eventually a finding that the officer was legally justified, that they had a reasonable apprehension. Even in cases where prosecutors go to great lengths, where there's somebody charged and they show at trial to the judge, to the jury, you know, what the legal standard is. They bring in other officers who were there who said they didn't perceive a threat. They bring in experts. And as soon as an officer gets on the stand in their own defense and testifies that they were scared, that they felt they had to shoot, they're sorry they did it, but that they had to do it, that's all she wrote. The judge, the jury, they seem to discount the legal standard, and they just aren't willing to second-guess the split-second decisions of police officers in these violent street encounters. And they end with a hung jury. They end with an acquittal. They end in ways that prosecutors just just didn't imagine they'd end. So I don't think there's an easy fix here, but I do think we need to drill down farther into problems with the training, uh, the cognitive processes. What is it about the law enforcement training and experiences that they think it's okay to shoot somebody in the back? It's not a video game. It's not okay. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very, very cogent point there. And certainly uh, sort of similar situation with the, the Walter Scott thing that I, I just couldn't really understand why the guy felt the need to, you know, chase him down and, and shoot him. Like, I mean, it just seems like it's a traffic stop at the end of the day. How big of a deal is it? And I mean, I just wonder how much of that is, you know, also sort of cultural and and how officers are, are seeing their, their role and seeing other individuals sort of adversarially. I, I remember when there was the case, I, I don't know if it was last year or the year before last, but where there was the, the psychologist who got shot while he was uh, standing there. He was sitting on the street with his hands up. And he related the story that the cop actually came to apologize to him later in the hospital. And he said, why would you shoot me? And the guy was like, you know, I, I, I don't even know. And then it turned out that that was the same police department that had also gotten in trouble a couple of years back because they were using like actual photos of black people as targets on the range. And you just wonder what kind of like subconscious thing was going through this guy's head uh, when he pulled the trigger there. And I mean, it just seems like drilling down a little bit more sort of culturally into figuring out how police officers are perceiving the communities they're in is really important to understanding what, what is really going on here and, and certainly the real things that perhaps, uh, you know, will, will mitigate. Well, well, I think two points. You mentioned the Walter Scott shooting. So you have Michael Slager, the police officer in North Charleston, South Carolina. That video was shocking on many levels. Uh, the first is that 
the shooting as as Walter Scott's running away from the officer seemed so casual. It seemed like the officer was engaging in target practice. It, it just was a very calm thing to do. And then the second problem is his very first thought after shooting the man in the back, who was no threat to the officer when he was running away from the officer, was to plant evidence and to run back and get his taser that had fallen on the ground 50, 60 feet away and run up and put it next to the a dying man or the dead man's body. So he could later claim, well, he was a threat. He was trying to, he had gotten my taser away. He was going to shock me. I had no choice. That's very scary. And that really peeled back the curtain because that video was a, a real eye-opener, not only for people like me who study this type of thing, but but for the general public. It was a, oh my gosh, you know, th- this is incredibly troubling. And I think that that is more common than we know with people being shot in the back. And frankly, the, the reports that are written, the statements that are made by police officers, what we've seen in these video cases is that they're quite often inconsistent with the video evidence. And then a second point is you got to wonder about the type of firearms that police officers are carrying now. So the semi-automatic pistols with large number of uh, rounds uh, is very different than the six-shot Smith & Wesson Model 10 revolver that I carried as a police officer. Here, I don't like to use the word, uh, the phrase, a hair trigger, but it's very easy to fire these guns. When an officer clenches up, uh, they go off. So I, I wonder in some of these cases whether these are actually accidental shootings. When they say, I don't know, I shot them. There was a case in Fairfax County, Virginia, where Michael Gere shot by a police officer, uh, Adam Torres, uh, a number of years ago. I, I thought that was an accidental shooting. And then Torres comes out and says, no, I meant to shoot him. I thought he was a threat. So I wonder about the type of firearm that they're carrying, whether there's something about that as well and whether they really are meaning to shoot or if they're accidental. You know, back when the uh, Metropolitan Police Department went to the semi-automatic Glocks back, I think it was a Glock 17, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, I was involved in a case there where we represented somebody who had been shot by uh, a Metropolitan Police officer. And in discovering and getting ready for that criminal trial, we found that there had been, I I think it was 50-some accidental discharges in police stations in the District of Columbia while officers were trying to holster their own weapons. I think it was 56, if my memory is correct, just dozens upon dozens. And that there were issues there in terms of the training and the switching over to that different type of firearm. So there, there's a lot of questions here. There's no one easy answer. There's no one easy fix. We've got different levels of training, different types of firearms, different past experiences. It's exhausting, Eugene, to talk to you and Sean about this because we have the same discussions over and over again. And we have to because it's important to have this public dialogue and keep it going in the public discourse. I tell my student research assistants on my staff, I say, you know, I want to I want to fix this so we can move on and do something else, research something else. But, you know, we don't have any answers. Yeah. Dr. Stinson, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, well, a couple of times uh, so far in our discussion here about training of police officers. And I'm curious how you feel about uh, some conversations that are happening more increasingly. Really, I should say questions uh, around training and sort of their uh, uh, value, really, given sort of the broader culture of the police, which I think you touched on as well in terms of this militarized uh, attitude and a uh, frame of orientation when it comes to uh, policing in this country. Uh, I mean, there are some who feel that uh, there, there's no amount of training that really could uh, seriously address uh, these extrajudicial uh, killings and other uh, instances of abuse and things like that. And and I agree when you say that there's no uh, one thing that could really solve the issue. Uh, but it does seem that uh, there's sort of a deep 
institutional uh, uh, environmental piece to in terms of the police uh, that has to be addressed internally. And that when that's brought up, the police as an institution uh, usually seem pretty uh, unwilling to, to sort of do that, sort of look in the mirror, if you will. So I'm just curious uh, how you see that issue in terms of how the police themselves deal with their own uh, internal culture. And I refer to it as the police subculture, and it's a very mm. deep subculture in the socialization process when a young recruit comes into the police department and, and what they go through over the first few weeks, months, and years that they're working there. And yeah, we, you know, we've had a military style in policing really for the last hundred years I mean, most places across the country. It's an us versus them mentality that police officers develop, that they become very suspicious of anybody who's not a police officer, sometimes their own relatives, you know, it's not good enough that your brother-in-law is a firefighter. You're very suspect of that person. It's really a closed door society, uh, who they associate with off duty quite often, who they trust, who they're friends with, who their spouse or significant other friends with. So we have to look at what what is it we want the police to do and, and who is it that the, we want to be police officers? Uh, what type of people are we bringing into that? Is it more of a social work job? Is it more of a military style law and order type thing, maintaining the peace. There's one area where I've actually seen a change, and there's a police department up in the Boston area where the police chief decided really unilaterally to change the way that they were dealing with the opioid epidemic and inviting people to come to the police station and we'll find you help, we'll get you medical treatment, and really thinking of it as a public health crisis instead of a criminal process or, or, or law enforcement. And and that really has taken hold in, in different places across the country where we're starting to see the police change the way that they deal with a certain problem. But that's unique in that regard. And I don't know, but, but you know, we, we really need to rethink all this. And it, it needs to come uh, from within policing. And it's very difficult, even when a police chief were to make such a decision, this is how we're going to deal with people who come to us with heroin and say they want help. Get your uh, rank and file officers to go along with it, getting the prosecutor who's typically elected to go along with it. It's very, very difficult. And time and again, we think we've reached a tipping point here. And I don't think we have. I think in many respects, it's business as usual, and they batten down the hatches, and that the police subculture sort of takes over. And it, as the summer heats up, literally, we see more potential for violent street encounters. And unfortunately, we see more potential for violence in the wake of this because it's really hard to hold it together as a community in demonstrating and responding peacefully when it's 110 degrees and it's uh, July or August. I'm glad you bring up the, the deeply insular nature of the police subculture because I think that that also is a serious issue when it comes to accountability. You know, I, I hear people say all the time that, you know, why don't um, why are more police like speaking out about things like this? But I mean, there's sort of a real consequence of for or there can be for police who do that, maybe even from their own leadership. And uh, you also bring up this notion about uh, 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 police uh, misconduct, if you will, or abuses as a, a public health issue. And I think that's something that we're, we're seeing more and more. I mean, I think we certainly tend to look at it that way uh, here in Washington, D.C., and the conversation then begins to turn to, you know, redefining public safety and having, you know, the security of communities sort of more so be handled uh, by communities themselves and less by the police. So it seems that, uh, um, and I don't know how you feel about this, Dr. Stinson, but to me at least, it seems as though a conversation around these sorts of issues and police killings and things like this really would have to take a serious look at really uh, questioning 
uh, the presence and role of police in our uh, society, period, and, and really having sort of a drastic change from what it's been and sort of maybe rearranging where police even are in terms of how they, uh, 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 the, the role they play within society. I fully agree with you. And policing is local. We think about, well, this is a national problem, but remember, we've got more than 18,000 state and local law enforcement agencies across the country. We think of the big city police departments. We think of Baltimore City, the New York Police Department, Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. We think of these big agencies, but the majority of police agencies across the country are very small departments. And the shooting this last week with East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that police department, frankly, is more representative of what we see in Pennsylvania, which are small police departments with uh, very few full-time officers and, and more part-time officers than full-time officers and agencies that they don't have the type of ongoing in-service training that a larger agency would have and opportunities for officers to have lateral transfers and specialization. So I think that because policing is local in this country and it's really very decentralized, this is going to have to start at the local level with some really innovative police chiefs and sheriffs who are willing to think outside the box and think of these issues as public health crises and think of these issues as community problems and trying to figure out other ways of doing it. Because as we're getting more data, as we're learning that 900 to 1,000 times a year on-duty police officers in the United States shoot and kill someone, which is frankly more than twice what the Justice Department and the Center for Disease Control would, would have us believe in years past, we're just now in the last few years really taking the responsibility to figure out other ways to collect the data if the federal government isn't going to do it or can't do it for whatever reason, and realizing the depth of these problems. Because the way I look at this, with all types of police misconduct, when an officer is arrested or when there's a fatal shooting, whether the officer is arrested or not, people tend to look at their local newspaper, whether they're reading it in hard copy or reading it online or watching their local news, the lead story on the 10 o'clock news or the 11 o'clock news in the evening, and they think, wow, that's a horrible situation. That doesn't happen very often. And what they don't realize is that people in communities all across the country are reading and hearing about similar incidents in their own local law enforcement agencies. And when we start to aggregate all this, it's eye-opening and very troubling that we've got much bigger problems than we think. So we've got these mm -hmm. big global problems with policing nationwide, and yet policing is local. We've got 18,000 or so agencies, and then we've got at least 51 jurisdictions, the states, and the uh, District of Columbia with their own requirements in terms of training and certification of officers. Uh, right. it, it's complicated. It is. It is. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, unfortunately. But thank you so much, Dr. Stinson, as always, for joining us here on the show. We're going to take a break by any means necessary. Radio Sputnik, Washington, D.C. We'll be back. Stay with us. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. It was recorded on June 27, 2018, and originally aired on the Radio Sputnik show by any means necessary on June 29, 2018. My thanks to Bob Schluber, Eugene Purier, and Sean Blackman. Support for the Police Integrity Loss podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I am an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.